This episode is brought to you by the American Institute of Architects' third annual I Look Up Film Challenge. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Emily Booter. And I'm John Fusco. It's June 1st, 2017, and on this week's show, our in-depth field report from the 70th Cannes Film Festival, the first leaked camera news from Cinegear, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Welcome to this week's show from downtown Brooklyn, New York. It's hard to believe it's June since I'm literally sitting in our booth in a full-on winter sweater. But, as usual, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. Starting with the biggest film event of the year, the Cannes Film Festival. Emily Booter, we missed you so much the last couple weeks. I missed you guys, too. It was was amazing. (laughs) Yeah, we want to hear all about it. Why don't you jump right in? All right, well... um, First of all, I started to feel like it was my life when I was there. I was like, I could get used to this, you know, walking along the beach for 30 minutes to a screening um, and then watching three movies a day and, you know, just living that life. Um, I was becoming very accustomed to it. So it was a rude awakening coming back. (laughs) Yeah, the FOMO is real. It's hard to be here looking at everybody's pictures and social media from Cannes when we're... uh Stuck at home. (laughs) But, you know, it's nice to have some normalcy again. Um, So last year, in terms of the lineup, just looking at the lineup from a global perspective, there weren't that many high-profile films that that premiered at Cannes. They became high-profile after they premiered because people were buzzing about them, um, but they weren't big-name directors um, and things like that. This year, there were a lot of really high-profile European directors and some American directors that that had films premiering there, like Sofia Coppola, Todd Haynes, Cornel Mondrisco, Michael Haneke. It it goes on and on. And um, so while I was trying to figure out what to cover, I kind of was limited to some of the things that were already I knew were already going to generate a lot of buzz. Thankfully, I was telling Liz that intersection between my interest and the buzz generating. It was kind of big this year. But it also meant that I didn't get to do a lot of like small discovery movies, um, which I did last year. So that was a main difference for me personally this year. It seemed like the buzzy films were actually like the buzz was actually warranted, though. Actually, yeah, but um, I would say generally, generally there was um, a critical consensus around which films were good this year, but there was a big controversy around the Palme d'Or, which is the most prestigious film award in all of Europe, if not the entire world. And this year, the Gilded Trophy went to Ruben Ostlund's The Square. So the reason why it was a major upset is because almost everybody on the ground thought the shoe-in would be Robin Campillo's 120 Beats Per Minute, which was a French AIDS crisis drama that found basically the entire press screening weeping when the lights came on during its premiere. So 120 beats per minute actually did win the Grand Prix, but that's essentially a second place award. And many people found this to be a major snub. It was a pretty controversial decision from the jury, which was headed by the jury president, Pedro Almodovar. In fact, Almodovar cried when a member of the press asked him point blank why he, a major LGBT advocate, didn't award the Palme d'Or to a film that was maybe one of the best LGBT films made in recent memory. And he said, quote, Campillo tells the story of real heroes that saved many lives. We can all agree with that. 
And later, Jessica Chastain, also a member of the jury, cried too. So it kind of seems like this was not an easy deliberation for the jury this year. So much crying. So much crying. (laughs) So what's so great about the film that did win, The Square? If you saw Oslin's previous film, Force Majeure, you know what he's capable of. I found that movie, which was about a bourgeois family ski vacation gone horribly wrong, to be one of the best films of 2014. Like Force Majeure, The Square is a satirical drama in which Oslin finds absurd ways to illuminate the fallacies of human interaction. In Force Majeure, he tackled modern manhood, and this time around in The Square, he sets his sights on liberalism and the art world. The movie takes place in near-future Sweden, where a self-aggrandizing art curator faces various moral dilemmas that lead him to question his carefully curated sense of security in an increasingly complicated and uncertain world. The film is much more unpredictable, uncomfortable, ambitious, and way over the top than Force Majeure, which meant that some people found it to be a little bit lesser of the two. But if you're listening in America, you can soon see for yourself The film is getting a stateside theatrical release from Magnolia Pictures soon enough. All things considered, I certainly hope that Ausland is happy, because this is kind of major retribution for Force Majeure's Oscar nomination snub of 2015. And you know that if you saw the YouTube live video of Ausland when he gets the news, because he was not that happy about that snub. Hopefully this makes up for it. So what about some of the other awards winners? Right. So the jury prize went to Loveless, which I saw and loved, despite the fact that it definitely lives up to its title. In my opinion, Andrei Zvayensev deserves the award. He's one of Russia's most fearless filmmakers. His previous film, Leviathan, was an indictment of the Russian state and perhaps the definitive Russian film of our time. This time around, Loveless is an indictment of the human condition in Russia, which Zvayensev depicts as transactional, vapid, narcissistic, and, yes, loveless. I actually spoke to him at Cannes this year, and it was a very interesting conversation, if not hampered a bit by words lost in Russian translation. Um, So you can check out that interview on nofilmschool.com. The Best Actress and Actor Award went to, respectively, Diane Kruger for In the Fade and Joaquin Phoenix for Lynn Ramsey's You Were Never Really Here, which premiered sadly after I left the festival. I was dying to see it, and Ramsey is one of my favorite filmmakers, uh, but... I will catch it when it comes to America. Best Director went to Sofia Coppola for her Southern Gothic pot boiler, The Beguiled, which hits theaters in the U.S. June 15th. And many people are saying this is a glorious return to form for Coppola. This was a big deal, too, right? Because she's only the second female director to ever win the exactly. Best Director at Cannes. Yeah. It was a great year. Um, there were more female directors this year at Cannes than ever before, but still it was a pretty low number. So they can do better. The best screenplay went to The Killing of a Sacred Deer and You Were Never Really Here. It was a tie. The camera d'or went to Jeune Femme, directed by Leonore Salray and shot by Emilie Noblette. This film plays like a French Francis Ha and features women in nearly all of the above the line and below the line crew. So I said earlier that I didn't have much time to discover any breakouts, but that's not entirely true because... I would like to give my own special award to the surprising breakout American film, which I found this year to be Chloe Zhang's The Rider. Zhang shot her previous film, Songs My Brothers Taught Me, on an Indian reservation in South Dakota. And for The Rider, she returns to the Lakota reservation to tell the true story of a Native American rodeo star who suffers a near-fatal accident in the arena. 
Brady, the rodeo star in question, plays himself as he tries and fails to reclaim the only life he knows and loves, with horses. The film is, is a docufiction hybrid, although when I spoke to Zhang at the festival, she told me that they did pretty closely follow a script, which Zhang wrote after talking to Brady about his life. She even included dialogue that Brady originally said to her. And watching the film, Brady's life actually feels like a lesson in screenplay writing. He's a classic hero, kind of a specter of the Old West, who has obstacle after obstacle thrown at him as he fights his fate. It was kind of incredible to learn that those obstacles were the fabric of real life. The film also features breathtaking cinematography of Brady interacting with horses in the rugged terrain. Thankfully, I wasn't the only person who loved this film, which screened in Cannes' director's Fortnite sidebar. Werner Herzog was at the premiere, too, and afterward, he apparently came up to Zhang and sang the film's praises. Emily, is it that time? It's time! Time for... The Bottom Line! The Bottom Line with Emily Booter. <laughs> Welcome to The Bottom Line. I'm delivering you the acquisition news from France with a mouthful of macaron and chocolate croissant. So excuse my French, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Some distributors came to Cannes this year with films already in the bag. So I will start with those just to give you a little bit of a baseline of the bottom line. Netflix came with Noah Baumbach's family drama, The Meyerowitz Stories, and Bong Joon Ho's Okja, and Amazon had Todd Hang's Wonderstruck. Other pre buys included Focus Features with Coppola's The Beguiled, and A24 with Yorgos Lanthimos, The Killing of a Sacred Deer and the Safdie Brothers' Good Time, which unfortunately also screened very late in the festival, and I couldn't see it, but I heard it was amazing. But the deal-making really began as things started to heat up on day one of the festival. Sony Pictures Classics nabbed Loveless, The Rider, thank goodness, Oscilloscope bought firework stock Brimstone and Glory, and Beauty and the Dogs. The Orchard acquired that palm-to-or snub 120 beats per minute, Cohen Media Group exposed their francophile nature and sprung for Double Lover, Francois Ozon's erotic mystery, and Jean-Luc Godard's biopic, Redoubtable. Which, by the way, I was in line to see when there was a bomb scare because someone had left a package, a suspicious package, outside of the theater during a press screening. So I ran away and got an ice cream and pet some dogs on the beach instead. Yikes. Sundance Selects picked up Jonas Carpignano's follow-up to Mediterranean, called Asiambra, and Claire Denise let the sunshine in. And perhaps the hottest buy at the festival this year was Sean Baker's The Florida Project, which went to A24. I spoke with the Tangerine director at the festival and will be publishing the interview on nofilmschool.com shortly. Note that these acquisitions occurred exclusively for films that screened at Cannes this year as part of its official lineup, because hundreds of more deals actually are made at the Cannes market, or Marche, where 80% of the world cinema business is conducted. Now, Marche, what language is that? French. Oh. It is <laughs> Francais. Well, yeah, I know The Strange Ones got picked up, the film that I interviewed the directors of at Sundance. I'm not sure where that happened. The Marche. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. It's amazing how much happened sort of as part of Cannes that's not like in the main slate. Yeah. Actually, I think, I don't know what the statistics are, but something like half of um, the festival badge holders are actually Marche goers, um, and they go to exclusively go to screenings inside the market, which has its own screening schedule and in its own set of theaters. Um, and it's all for films that are not premiering at Cannes. Wow. 
So I have a question to follow up on our kind of pre-Can coverage where we talked about the big controversy with Netflix playing films at Can that might not be released theatrically. Whatever became of all that? Well, actually, it was funny because um, the first Netflix film that premiered was Okja. And Netflix financed and produced that film. Um, and in the screening, in the first screening, there was this crazy technical malfunction, which caused the film to have to restart nearly five minutes in. And it was a press screening, which are known to be pretty rowdy at Cannes. So everyone was booing and someone even shouted, that's what you get for being a Netflix movie. But actually, when I interviewed Tilda Swinton and Bong Joon-ho, we discussed the Netflix controversy, which Liz detailed in last week's episode. And the director and actor couldn't have offered a more glowing review of working with Netflix in production. Bong Joon-ho said, quote, I loved working with Netflix. They gave me great support. The budget for the film is considerable. Giving such a budget to a director isn't very common. I had total liberty. It was a wonderful experience in terms of shooting and editing, and they never intervened. They truly respected me from beginning to end and, quite frankly, gave me total freedom with no restrictions. And then Tilda Swinton was thinking more in terms of the audience reach, which is, I think, an angle that's pretty appropriate here. She said, quote, there are thousands of films screened at Cannes that people never see in theaters. Netflix has given Bong Joon-ho a chance to make his liberated vision a reality. So incidentally, this kind of ties into everything. I went to the fanciest party of my entire freaking life at Cannes. It was the Netflix party. And clearly they were making a huge statement, which was in huge capital letters, we have arrived because they dropped so much money at that party. It was at this huge villa. Um, I felt like a little kid in Disney World (laughs) when I was there just wandering around with my mouth agape. Um, But clearly they're they're here and they're here to stay. Did they give out free bonbons? No, they didn't. That kind of reminds me, I think uh, the same Friday that you were at, uh, at Cannes, I was at home eating uh, mac and cheese that I would sprinkled some chips in because I didn't have any meat and that was all I had left. So I just had a bowl of mac and cheese with tortilla chips inside and a glass of water. Were you watching Netflix? Uh, yeah, I think I was actually. Okay, good. So we got both sides same, of the spectrum. Same, yeah. same. same. Was, was the mac and cheese crunchy? No. That's too bad. I the like chips the idea were. of chips, chips and mac and cheese. I needed yeah. to put something in it because Texture. it was too boring. Mm. John likes some good crunch in this life. Mm-hmm. So that was my crazy story from uh, from when you were at Cannes. But what about, do you have any crazy stories from when you were at Cannes? Well, do you want the G version or the PG-13 the or the version? NC-17 oh, version? the X-rated version. <laughs> X. X. Okay. Well, I'm going to actually settle for the PG version. Oh, okay. Um, (laughs) So you were bluffing. (laughs) Well, okay. So I got the Marche, which I was just describing earlier, is this huge convention center. It is so easy to get lost in there unless you know exactly where you're going, which like three people who are all probably festival buyers that have been going for 50 years know how to navigate. Um, So at one point I was really lost and someone told me how to get to the bathroom and it involved like 15 left and right turns. I obviously messed it up. I wound up 
going onto a balcony where suddenly... <laughs> Did you go to the bathroom on the balcony? <laughs> no. And thank goodness I didn't because guess where I wound up? I wound up at the photo call of the 70th anniversary um, party, which had was the most high profile event at Cannes. Um, there was, as soon as I walked out there, there were like flashes of light. There was Tilda Swinton. There was Al Fanning, like all these people right there. These three men... Um, <laughs> these three men who clearly were able to pick me out of the crowd immediately as someone who didn't belong came and asked me um, what I was doing and I got escorted out. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing, but I've never before been more aware of you know, how much I don't look like a celebrity. <laughs> um, anyway. I want to know what the NC-17 version of that was. <laughs> Is there like a reason why you had to go to the bathroom so bad or... <laughs> Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Lots of shellfish there. Yeah. Okay, so none of us want to leave France, but wrapping up the segment, I'm wondering were there kind of like overall themes that you noticed or, you know, your sort of takeaways about the state of cinema? Okay, so are you ready for my festival hot take? Hot takes. (laughs) Get ready. This is sizzling. Okay, so here's my festival hot take. Yorgos Lanthimos made a Michael Haneke movie. Haneke made an Andre Zvintev movie. Zvintev made a Ruben Ostlund movie. And Ruben Ostlund made a Lanthimos movie. So in an article, which I'm going to publish tomorrow, which kind of wraps up the festival, I'm deciding to call this director's incest because each of these auteurs did a little bit of interbreeding with their Cannes premieres this year. Allow me to explain. <laughs> Lanthimos burst onto the scene with Dogtooth, a grisly social satire, and followed that up with the massively successful The Lobster, which you all probably saw. And that's just about as absurdist as romantic comedies go. But instead of making another absurdist satire, Lanthimos made a Hanukkah movie in the style of Funny Games. And it even featured an iconic image from that film of someone with a bag over their head with a gun pointed to their head. Hanukkah, in turn, made an Andres Vintev movie. So instead of horrifying us with a psychological thriller, Hanukkah made a nihilistic movie called Happy End about the hopelessness of modern life in the style of the Russian director. In turn, Zvintev made Loveless, which is actually a Ruben Oslin movie because it's a slow-burning social critique. And it all comes full circle because Osland made a Lanthimos movie with The Square, which we mentioned earlier, the Palme d'Or winner, and it's an outrageous satire that hovers around Lanthimos's level of absurdity. This maybe is a dumb question, but are you being literal? Did they literally work on each other's films? Or <laughs> no. you're saying they, they just made... borrowed from each other's ah, so, the styles. The styles, yes. So each of these guys has a very distinctive style, and um, it seemed that they all kind of played musical chairs this year. <laughs> well, you know what? France is like the country of swingers, so it makes really sense. Really true. Yeah, that's where my NC 17 story comes in. Just kidding. The incest. Bonjour. So, Emily, thank you so much for being there, representing us, and for all your coverage. We have a bunch of those articles already up on nofilmschool.com, and several more will be rolling out over the next couple weeks. So, all of you out there can look forward to more of Emily's hot, hot takes and NC-17 stories from France. Thank you for sending me. It was amazing. And I guess we'll move right into gear news, because there was just so much news out of Cannes. So we just posted three weeks ago and talked on the show about Manfrotto's new N8 fluid video head, and it's already being pulled from the shelves, we found out this week. 
um, the recall's not due to any safety issues, but instead Manfrotto explained that they've identified an opportunity to further improve their new counterbalance system when operated under excessively demanding conditions. In a press release, the company stated that it's performing a, quote, slight revision to the CBS system to avoid the possibility of product breakage resulting from misuse. Kind of weird that they would go ahead and recall if there weren't actually any real problems, but hey. If you own one already and you need to get the replacement, they're going to throw in a complimentary Spectra LED light to uh, you know, help make it up to you. And both of these things will be um, available later in July. So if you purchase the video head, you can contact the company directly. Uh, they gave an email address, nitrotech.replacement at manfrotto.com. And you can call the customer service department. We'll put all that info in this week's podcast post. And moving on, we've got an update on Kodak's effort to open some new film labs in major cities across the world. We've heard a lot about Kodak's plans to bring film back, and while we've seen many big-budget productions pick up the mantle on this charge, many of our readers are quick to point out that the only real way to save film is to have the same amount of labs, telecine facilities, and support services available as there were in the good old days. Today, there's only around 10 film labs left in the United States, and the risks and expenses associated with shipping film stock kind of outweigh the benefits for many filmmakers, uh, especially filmmakers like us, low-budget or independent filmmakers who, uh, you know, put a lot of their own money into these films to not want to watch them just go through some bad exposure, literally bad exposure. Kodak is fully aware of the limitations associated with a lack of development services and is looking to take matters into its own hands by rebuilding quality labs in major cities across the world. So as a part of that effort, in a memo published earlier last week, Kodak has announced it has signed a five-year lease on part of the Ken Adam building at Pinewood Studios in the UK to establish a new film negative processing lab. For those of you who aren't familiar, Pinewood is the largest production house in the UK, home to the production of Star Wars, among other major blockbusters. But back in the States, Kodak recently acquired a film processing lab at Atlanta, Georgia, where film is already being processed for TV shows like The Walking Dead and other major film and television productions. Kodak will also be opening and operating a lab in Queens in New York City later this year, which will service 35mm, Super 16, and Super 8 film processing and scanning. So... It's a massive effort. We'll see if, uh, you know, opening strategically labs in certain cities will help film become more of a feasible reality for a lot of low-budget filmmakers. Um, right now, there's only two more <laughs> labs in America, so hopefully we'll see some more pop up. And finally, Charles Hayne reported from the grounds in L.A. this morning. He's there, right? Charles Hayne is in L.A. at Cinegear, where it has leaked that the Canon C200 is going to be announced. And along with that leak, we got a lot of the tech specs and price details. Canon is working to address the major complaint about its platform, which is the price. With the new C200, it offers Eternal 4K RAW at $7,500. With that price point, it fills in a hole on the Canon Cinema line between the entry-level C100 and the C300 Mark II. But our own tech god Charlie Hayne says in some ways, the new camera, which uses the same sensor as the C300 Mark II and the the top-of-the-line C700, outperforms its older sibling, the C300. It is the first Canon cinema camera to have dual-pixel autofocus, which is part of the reason Charles says that, and when combined with a 4-inch OLED touchscreen, 
which allows you to touch for focus plus face detection, autofocus is now a highly usable tool for interviews and gimbal work in a way that it has never been before. You can get more info on the camera's tech specs on our site, and Canon will have the C200 available for evaluation at Cinegear this weekend, where several of our writers will be covering it. So in that vein, you should stay tuned for that coverage, which should also include the announcement of Panasonic's new camera that we uh, saw teased at NAB. This summer, the American Institute of Architects is presenting the third annual I Look Up Film Challenge. This contest invites architects and filmmakers to collaborate on films highlighting projects and architects that are helping to change communities for the better. This year's theme, Blueprint for Better, shines a light on the powerful social impact of architects and their work. See this year's kickoff film called Midtown A Blueprint for Better and register for the I Look Up Film Challenge at ilookup.org by June 26th. Final films are due August 13th, 2017. And in Ask No Film School this week, Eduardo Gonzalez wrote to ask advice about job hunting, specifically whether or not he should pay for job services like filmandtvpro.com or Media Match or find another method of applying for industry jobs. I couldn't tell from Eduardo's profile where he's from, and this is somewhat dependent on where you live and whether or not those job sites tend to have listings in your area, but I can offer some general tips to you and to anyone who is looking for jobs in the industry right now. The most sort of applies to everyone everywhere thing I can say is that if you really need a job, you probably want to take whatever means necessary to get one, which could certainly include some of these paid job sites. But that being said, there are plenty that you don't have to pay for. A popular one is mandy.com, M-A-N-D-Y.com, which lists all kind of production jobs all over the place. When I looked this morning to research this answer, there were about 250 jobs listed in both New York and California, so like 500 total just in those two places, and a bunch everywhere else as well. You can also go straight to the websites of production companies and see if they have their own job listings. You basically Google production companies in your area, and also look at IMDb to find out the production companies for the types of shows and movies that you'd like to work on, and then figure out how to contact them. You can use LinkedIn to try to find people who work at those companies, and there are job listings on LinkedIn. Also, find out if there are film and TV job groups on Facebook in your area. For example, here in New York, there's one called NYTV People, where members list jobs almost every day. Of course, none of this beats in-person recommendations, so you'll likely have to get out there and search beyond the internet. The same advice that we've given people who ask about breaking into the industry applies here. Do your research about who's making stuff in your area and figure out how to meet them. Make sure your reel and website are updated, volunteer on sets if you have to, network at film festivals and events, let all your colleagues and friends know that you're looking for work and what you have to offer, and of course, be persistent. Good luck, Eduardo. And now on to some movies that you can check out this week. First on VOD. Coming to Amazon Prime Instant is Asghar Farhadi's The Salesman on June 1st. The Iranian director made some waves when the film won the best foreign language film at the Oscars earlier this year. And you might remember that while he was not strictly banned from attending the award show, he boycotted it in the form of a protest against President Trump's newly implemented Muslim ban. The film is about a woman who's assaulted in her new home, while participating in a production of Death of a Salesman. This leaves her husband determined to find the perpetrator over his wife's traumatized objections. Farhadi had previously won an Oscar for a separation six years ago in 2011, and that film is excellent and is a must-see. And coming to Netflix on June 1st, you can check out Zodiac, which is perhaps one of David Fincher's most overlooked films. 
Zodiac tracks a San Francisco cartoonist's obsession with tracking down the Zodiac Killer, who was a serial killer who terrorized Northern California in the late 1960s and early 1970s. I've been really looking forward to this coming back to streaming services. I think it was on HBO uh, last year, and I just, for some reason, I didn't get around to watching it again. But I'm really stoked to see it again. Uh, Fincher was actually nominated for the Palme d'Or back in 2007 for his directorial efforts on the film. And the film stars Jake Gyllenhaal, Robert Downey Jr., Mark Ruffalo, and making perhaps his most recognizable appearance is an actor we interviewed on the podcast just a few weeks ago, John Carroll Lynch. And also coming to Netflix on June 2nd, you can check out Saving Banksy, which we have like the opportunity to get 80 posters for. Oh, wow. Yeah. We should jump on that. Well, we did it. (laughs) (laughs) It's directed by Colin Day and distributed by our good friends at Candy Factory. Saving Banksy is the story of one misguided art collector's attempt to save Banksy's famous Hate Street Rat from destruction and the auction block. We had our South by Southwest party in collaboration with this film uh, at the Grackle this year in Austin, so check it out. Oh, I get it now. All the posters were on the table at the Grackle. <laughs> they brought a uh, lot of posters. Yeah, they did. Yeah. And coming to Hulu on June 1st is Blue Velvet. With Twin Peaks on everyone's minds these days, any fan should be sure and watch Blue Velvet while it's available on Hulu. If you're just getting into Lynch, I think Blue Velvet is one of his more accessible films, which is, you know, like not saying too much, but it's a good place (laughs) to start if you're enjoying Twin Peaks. Like Twin Peaks, Blue Velvet also stars a young Kyle MacLachlan, whose discovery of a severed human ear in a field leads him on an investigation related to a beautiful, mysterious nightclub singer played by Isabella Rossellini and a group of psychopathic criminals who have kidnapped her child. Dennis Hopper plays the film's villain and says fuck in nearly every sentence. In an interview, he once claimed that Lynch would never say the word fuck during filming. He would simply point to the line in the script and say, in quotes, that word. How PG. Yep. Hopper laughed, saying he can write it, but he won't say it. He's a peculiar man. Oh, yeah, there's the insight of the century. That's probably an understatement. But, hey, man, Dennis Hopper said it, and he knew some stuff. Lynch has said that this isn't exactly true, but he didn't want to charge the atmosphere any more than it already was. Coming to theaters on Friday is I, Daniel Blake, which we've talked a lot about on this podcast. Um, It is directed by Ken Loach, and it premiered at Cannes last year, where I saw it and loved it, and it won the Palme d'Or. The film is about a six-year-old carpenter who suffers a heart attack and has to fight the bureaucratic forces of the system in England in order to receive employment and support allowance. It's like a man-against-the-system movie, um, and it's pretty damn heartbreaking. And also coming to theaters, not exactly an indie film, but one that I put on our No Film School list of 2017's most anticipated films, Wonder Woman! You guys are too young, but do you remember the TV show? It had a really sweet theme song that went, Wonder Woman! (laughs) (laughs) This film is famously directed by Patty Jenkins, only the second female-directed film in history with a $100 million budget. Uh, It stars Gal Gadot, Chris Pine, and Robin Wright. And it, it gives us Wonder Woman's origin story. So it begins when she was Diana, princess of the Amazons, trained warrior, Uh, When a pilot crashes and tells of conflict in the outside world, she leaves home to fight a war to end all wars, discovering her full powers and true destiny. It's not in theaters yet, but there have been a bunch of press screenings, and at the time of recording, it's already rated the highest of any live-action superhero movie on all of Rotten Tomatoes, higher than any other film in the DC Cinematic Universe, which, let's face it, 
isn't that high, <laughs> but it even edges out the highest rated Marvel Universe titles. I am so excited to judge for myself this weekend. And if you're going to see one blockbuster this summer, see this one. Let people, you know, let the industry know that we actually do have an appetite for female fronted, female directed blockbuster films. Let me say something. This is going to be the first Marvel movie I ever see. Let me say something. It's not a Marvel movie. It's this, a DC movie. This is going to be the first DC movie and Marvel movie or, and superhero movie I've ever seen. You've never seen any Marvel movie before ever? I have never seen any Marvel before movie ever. Movie before ever. I find that hard to believe. So you've never seen Batman? You never, like you've never seen The Dark Knight? Oh, I saw The Dark Knight shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. My second. My second. It'll be your first DC movie. And it may not be a Marvel movie, but I bet it'll be marvelous. Batman was a DC character. Shit. <laughs> Crickets. <laughs> I know way too much about this stuff. I think that it's, I don't know, it's going to have a hard time edging out Guardians of the Galaxy for me. I love that shit. I think they're so different. Like, they are in the same world, but they're kind of like apples and oranges. I think we can appreciate them both. Superhero genre movies that break the mold. Moving on to our upcoming grant and festival deadlines. The Derek Freeze Documentary Fund has a deadline of June 12th that was launched to honor the memory of Derek Freeze. It's a finishing fund given biennially to an independent filmmaker for up to 35 grand, so it's a, it's a good one. It helps support doc filmmakers who are in various stages of the production and post processes, and you have to include a proposal and sample work that conveys the narrative and aesthetic visual for the final film, containing footage of no more than 15 minutes. The Woman in Film Finishing Fund has a deadline coming up on June 30th. It gives grants to filmmakers working in both short and feature-length formats in all genres, and to apply for the fund, the filmmaker must have completed 90% of principal photography and have a rough cut at the time of the application. Student projects are unfortunately not eligible. There are four $25,000 grants for fiction and documentary films. I'm not going to read too much into this. There is a particular consideration given to films with a water theme. NC-17 films with a water theme. So any Pisces, ladies. Oh, that's me. There you go. <laughs> Make splash, splash. <laughs> <laughs> Looking for that bathroom. <laughs> and here are some festival deadlines for the week. Doc NYC has its final deadline on June 2nd. It takes place from November 9th to the 16th. It's America's largest documentary festival based in New York City. And it has screenings at the West Village's IFC Center, Chelsea's SVA Theater, and Sinopolis Chelsea. It's an Academy Award qualifying festival and was voted by Movie Maker Magazine as one of the top five coolest documentary film festivals in the world. Ladies. And if you get your film in there, we'll probably cover it because we do pretty good coverage of Doc NYC. It's a great fest. Now, the Citizen Jane Film Festival also has a deadline on June 5th. It's the final deadline. This one takes place in October in Columbia, Missouri. It's a female-centric festival that aims to support independent films by independent women. Wonder Woman! As such, all submissions must be directed or co-directed by a woman, and it's one of the top 100 best-reviewed film festivals on Film Freeway. And June 9th is the regular deadline for Indie Memphis Festival. 
It takes place from November 1st to 6th in Memphis, Tennessee. The 2016 festival attracted a record-setting audience for nearly 200 feature films, shorts, and music videos. Indie Memphis has a strong focus on music. It connects filmmakers and festival attendees to the live music scene that pulses through the city, which is very good and bluesy. As such, they are one of the only festivals in the world to feature live music in the theater before every screening, and their new music film categories and music video showcases expand their emphasis on this collaboration between artists of all kinds. So if you got a music-focused film, might be a good place to check out. And now for everyone's favorite new segment. It used to be Ask No Film School. Now Ask No Film School is just I ate. And our new favorite segment is Weekly Words of Wisdom. I'm just kidding. They're both awesome. <laughs> but I'm going to kick it off. We reported a couple weeks ago about how summer box office returns were expected to be low this year, and indeed, this past Memorial Day weekend saw the lowest earnings in almost two decades. So despite my excitement about Wonder Woman, this turn of events has left a lot of critics wondering about the state of blockbuster films. One interesting take was detailed in a new video essay by Evan Pushak that longtime No Film Schooler Justin Morrow wrote up on the site. It talks about what Logan and Deadpool reveal about where the superhero genre is in the classical genre trajectory. I think it can be really useful when developing our own films to understand the context of where our work might fit into the larger cinematic canon. And this video essay revisits academic John G. Coelty's famous film studies essay from the 70s that argues that every film genre will ultimately go through the four phases of burlesque, nostalgia, demythologization, and reaffirmation of the genre's core values. In this case, Deadpool marked superheroes' burlesque phase by lampooning the comic book movie while simultaneously being a comic book movie, and Logan marks a shift into the reaffirmation phase where we remember why these films are meaningful. If you're at all interested in the evolution of genres and where your screenplay falls on the continuum, we'll link to it in the podcast post. I wrote up a masterclass that Alfonso Cuaron gave at Cannes last week, and I really like how simple he made his goals when he was first starting off, so I thought that I'd share just this one quote with you. Uh, Emmanuel Lubezki and Alfonso Cuaron met in college in Mexico, if you didn't know that, and they really came from humble beginnings. The collaborators' first projects were for a show they likened to a campy Mexican version of The Twilight Zone, which, uh, as you'll see, uh, Quaron refers to as The Toilet Zone, which is not a real TV show, but just a an endearing term. And also the story of Emily's time at Cannes. So here's the quote. When Chivo and I used to do these Toilet Zone episodes, we were happy if we had done one shot that was decent, Quaron remembers. With our first film, we evolved this idea to be, if we do one scene that is a good scene, we're happy. We had really low expectations in who we were. So that doesn't mean, you know, you you don't necessarily have to have low expectations in yourself, but I think setting realistic goals is a really good way to uh, be happy (laughs) about things and also to evolve your art. I also think that's really great. Not only that, I heard them make the same point when the two of them had uh, a conversation with each other at Tribeca last year. And the idea isn't just like just have low expectations, but also really try to make the thing you can do well the absolute best. So if you know you can really kill it with one scene, then just like kill it on that one scene, even if the rest of the thing belongs in the toilet zone. Yeah. One of my favorite interviews at Cannes this year was with Michael Haneke's longtime cinematographer, Kristen Berger, who, like Haneke, is an Austrian man. If you know Haneke's films, they're very stark visually. There's a lot going on in each frame, but a lot of it is happening in in a very subtle manner. 
So even though there's not a lot of action, there's a lot of visual detail. Um, and Berger is really the brains behind that. Um, and this emphasis on minimalism actually inspired him to create something he called the Cinereflect lighting system, which he used to shoot Happy End, the film that he had at Cannes. It's basically a system of reflectors, which, based on lighting principles from industrial architecture, reflects light in, in a very controlled manner. So productions that use this system actually only require one-tenth of the wattage associated with lighting regular shoots. So the 72-year-old cinematographer had a lot of advice for um, up-and-coming cinematographers. But I think my favorite was when I asked him point-blank what his advice would be. <laughs> and he said, quote, reduce, be simpler, don't look for answers where you have no questions. The film industry tries to sell you the newest technology, but don't believe in tools too much. Trust your own senses. Your camera is not only your eye, it is also your heart. Beautiful. And with that, I'd like to say, Happy Hanukkah. <laughs> I know we already did that joke on the podcast before, but it never gets old. I It's just brushed by me both times. I guess I didn't even notice. <laughs> oh, but it's so good, John. <laughs> Get it? Michael Hanukkah. That's probably because I'm not Jewish. I don't get it. I don't think the Austrian Michael Hanukkah is either. <laughs> All right. Well, before we close out, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to uh, a few festivals that are happening in New York City uh, this and next week. I had the pleasure of being asked to judge narrative shorts for the Brooklyn Film Festival, which begins tomorrow, uh, Friday, June 2nd, and ends on the 11th. They gave me a lot of power, and mm-hmm. uh, that was Use nice. It for good. Ultimate power. Uh, I watched over eight hours of shorts uh, in one day Dang. Uh, at a, one sitting, and it was kind of an insane endurance exercise, but I saw a ton of great stuff, um, and I'm not just saying that. There was like a lot of really good stuff from around the world, and if you want to see that, and if you want to know who we chose as the winner, I'm not going to tell you. You have to go. Oh, yeah. Catherine Eaton's film, The Sounding, is also playing at Brooklyn Film Festival, and I supported that one on Kickstarter, so I'm really excited to see the outcome. Looks like a good lineup all across the festival this year. And the Lower East Side Festival starts June 8th. It's another great one to check out. It's got a lot of free events and stuff going on throughout its run to the 15th. Uh, The podcast on Monday is actually going to be pretty interesting. It's a friend of mine from film school uh, who had a, pre- a film premiere at Tribeca this year, um, and I'm talking to her and her brother, who was also her producer, about what it was like to make her first feature film and have it premiere at Tribeca. Impressive. Yeah. So while you're hotly anticipating Monday's podcast slash going to the bathroom slash crumbling nachos over your mac and cheese. (laughs) We hope that you will subscribe to the No Film School podcast on iTunes and rate us with five stars and stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. At Yale Booter. At Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Nacho Jim Jim Jim. Nachos. Macho. Macho Jim John Jim. That's your wrestling name. Nah, it's Macho Jack John Jacked. Wow. This episode just got so much better. And with that, check out all these stories and more at nofilmschool.com, and we'll see you next week. 